Welcome to the podcast of Tech EU. I am your host, Andrew Degler, and today we are going to talk about the sustainability clause by European VCs, about shared micromobility forecast for 2020, and a few things in between. A brief housekeeping announcement first. We are going to experiment with the format and content of this podcast over the next few weeks, and I would love to hear your feedback on the length of the show, on the interviews, on the news briefing, on anything else, really. Please do let us know what you like and what you don't like. Write me an email at podcast at techu or reach out in any other way known to you. Thank you so much for this, and it is time to move on to today's episode. Let us start with a European tech news briefing, courtesy of Natalie Novik. Hi, this is Natalie Novik. Yes, the same Natalie Novik who told you last week that I would no longer be appearing on the TechEU podcast, but I'm staying true to my word, but happy to help out Andre as he launches a new feature this week for, to highlight some of the most important news stories in European tech for the last week. So to kick things off, the German-founded e-scooters company Cirque, formerly known as Flash, may soon be acquired by its U.S. rival Bird. The Financial Times reports that Bird approached more than one European e-scooter startup, but is now in serious talks with Cirque. The amount of the potential deal is expected to be under 1 billion U.S. dollars. Cirque, which raised at least 55 million euros to date, has reportedly been struggling with fundraising lately. Next, the French challenger B2B banking startup Quanto has raised $115 million in a Series C funding round led by Tencent and DST Global. TechCrunch reports that Quanto has managed to attract around 65,000 companies over the past two and a half years. The product is currently live in France, Italy, Spain, and Germany. With the fresh funding, the startup expects to grow its team from 200 to 300 employees within the year. Next, European leaders appear to be standing firm on plans to impose digital services taxes on U.S. tech giants in the coming months. Finance ministers from the U.K., France, and Italy have signaled to CNBC that they plan to proceed with taxing U.S. digital tech firms if a global solution cannot be found. Donald Trump has repeatedly threatened to retaliate against the move, but it doesn't seem to stop the European authorities. Next, Swedish open banking platform Tink has disclosed 90 million euros in new funding as TechCrunch reports. The news comes less than a year after the Swedish company announced its previous round of 56 million euros. Co-leading the round is Don Capital, HMI Capital, and Insight Partners. Tink launched in Sweden in 2013 as a consumer-facing finance app with bank account aggregation at its heart. However, it has since pivoted to become a fully-fledged open banking platform. Next, Munich-based Personio has raised $75 million in a Series C round led by Excel. Personio is an HR software platform for small and medium-sized businesses. Personio is used by almost 2,000 customers in more than 40 countries, according to the company. It is also reported its sales have almost tripled in the past year, while the number of employees has more than doubled to over 350. By the end of 2020, Personio wants to bring its total headcount to 700. 
Next, French President Emmanuel Macron has announced a change in the country's rules on stock options. Notably, a restriction has been removed on people with French tech visas that required companies to be headquartered in France. Now someone can receive stock options even if they are working for foreign businesses, and stock options are now priced at a fair market value rather than the price paid by investors. Next, China's Tencent, one of the world's biggest video and online gaming companies, has made an offer to acquire Funcom from Norway for $148 million. Funcom is the game developer behind Conan Exiles, Dune, and some 28 other titles. It is traded publicly on the Oslo Stock Exchange. The offer from Tencent was made at 17 Norwegian kroner per share, or about 27% higher than its closing share price the day before. Next, French company Loom Apps has secured a $70 million in a Series C round, bringing the company's total fundraising to $100 million. The round was led by Goldman Sachs. Loom Apps was founded in Paris in 2013 to build what is called a social intranet designed to connect, inform, and engage employees across an enterprise organization. Now, with fresh funding, Loom Apps wants to invest in artificial intelligence and machine learning, as well as add more integrations and add-ons. Next, more than 20 European VC firms, including Early Bird, Project A, Holdspring Ventures, and Cherry Ventures have joined forces to develop a sustainability clause. The clause commits an all newly funded startups to take part in additional climate protection initiatives going forward. You're going to hear Andre and Robin discussing this story in detail after this briefing. The European Commission and the European Investment Bank Group have announced 200 million euros of new investments into the EU space sector. The first part of the investment is a loan of 100 million euros for Ariane Group, which is to support a new launcher program, Ariane 6. The other 100 million euros will be invested into InnoFin Space Equity Pilot, a venture capital program for space tech SMEs in Europe. So these are some of the most important European tech news from the week of January 20th. I'm Natalie Novik. Back to Andre now and enjoy the rest of the show. Thank you, Natalie, so much for this recap. Now we are certainly ready to dive into the topics of the day. First, I got our founding editor, Robin Wouters, to join me from Brussels and talk about the sustainability clause that some German and uh, European VCs have introduced this week. Hey, Robin, how's it going? I'm good. How are you, Andre? All good. Thanks so much. So let's talk uh, the sustainability clause. Uh, can you just walk me through a little bit? What is it and uh, why do you actually think it's important at all? Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for having me back on the podcast. It's a real pleasure and privilege and honor. Always a pleasure. <laughs> um, so yeah, the sustainability clause, it's quite an interesting initiative if you ask me. So what happened was a number of venture capital firms from across Europe, but mostly from Germany or at least German speaking countries, um, have joined forces. I'm going to quote from the press release here uh, to develop a sustainability clause, which commits all newly financed companies to take part in additional climate protection initiatives going forward. So what that basically means is that they've committed to uh, uh, to putting a clause in any official documentation like term sheets um, and, and other contracts uh, with startups when they, when they uh, give them funding um, to basically commit the startups also to, you know, do a, a wide range of uh, initiatives to actually help uh, with the climate crisis, renewable energy. Um, so really put it down on paper that they're going to do something on sustainability. 
Right. So, I mean, I, I do have to say, I have a lot of respect to the VCs who joined uh, this initiative. Uh, it's a pretty uh, uh, impressive list uh, of uh, firms, but it just, to me, doesn't quite seem very sincere, to be entirely honest. Like, I've never heard of clauses where startups would commit, I don't know, to pay, to pay fair salaries or to make contract, to not make contractors wait months before their invoices are paid or to be careful with their customers' data and stuff. It just sounds like riding the media wave of a climate emergency. Yeah, I mean, that is obviously a fair point. I think it's also no surprise that they released this information just uh, coinciding with the DLD conference in Munich. And of course, the World Economic Forum happening in Davos, where sustainability were both uh, on these events, or should I say like a series of events, uh, huge topics. So I'm guessing they sort of want to jump on the bandwagon a little bit and and use sort of the hype around sustainability um, to make a case. Um, so I give you that, but uh, like I agree with, with, uh, with the other point that you made in the beginning was that the list of venture firms that are actually backing this is quite impressive. So I'm not going to go over the full list, but it's like Project A, it's Early Bird, it's Nord Zone, uh, it's firms like Holdspring, Acton Capital, you know, the Samuel Brothers with their Global Founders Capital, uh, and a bunch more, uh, Atlantic Labs, Iris Capital, you name it. So these, these are quite well-known uh, heavyweights in the European venture industry. So the fact that they're uniting around around this is already quite impressive. Um, the initiative was taken by the way by an organization called Leaders for Climate Action, uh, which is Berlin-based. So I think the intentions are really good. The names that they've collected are really good. The fact that they banded around this and, and really made like a joint effort to, to communicate around this, um, you know, it's, I can sort of forgive them for the fact that they're using, uh, the PR train that is DLD and Davos, um, to make their case. Um, but I also think that it's, you know, that it's, it's pretty easy to be cynical and skeptical about this and, and say, well, you know, they're, they're just telling their startups to do this, but they're also committing themselves to do, um, you know, sustainability efforts in, in their own firms, which I think is really good. And then, of course, you can make the case, like, do you also expect them to do this on diversity and fair salary and, and you know, uh, stock-based compensation for the startups and employees? And, I mean, you can go pretty far in this. So I think sustainability is sort of an easy one uh, because it's easy to get everyone uh, on board on the same on the same terms. Um, but yeah, all, all in all, I don't think it's a bad initiative. They don't have to do this. They don't... Um, I mean, nobody's forcing them to do this. Um, if they don't, nobody's going to call them out for it. So the fact that they're sort of taking proactive uh, initiative, which I, by the way, I don't have, I, I can't remember any VC uh, from across Europe doing anything like this in, in the past. I might be wrong. So correct me if I'm wrong, dear uh, listeners. Um, so I, don't, I think this is, this can only be good. It sort of show, showcases to the rest of the European venture community as well uh, what could be possible. So hopefully more of them will join um, this sustainability clause project down the line. No, for sure. But uh, I c if we wanted to go down to some details, do you actually understand how it's going to work? Because I really don't. And the description is pretty vague. And uh, I can quote here that it says that the companies will, uh, quote, begins commit to measure their CO2 emissions and implement reduction measures. And the quote ends. So it's kind, it's kind of vague. It's a, bit, it's a bit empty. And I'm not really sure I understand how it's going to be enforced uh, or, or if it can be enforced at all. Um, yeah, that's up to the venture firms to to decide and to communicate, of course. So, so what I think the problem is, because if you gather more than 20 VC firms and you sort of uh, look at their entire portfolios, we're talking about hundreds of companies in total, right? So it's very, very difficult, I, I guess, for them to be very specific on what companies can do, because it 
depends completely on what these companies do as a business, right? Are they a marketplace? Do they ship products? Um, do they have packaging? And so all of that is very specific to these companies. So I guess that's why the wording is so vague. Um, but of course, there's things that you can implement across the board, which is uh, some of the things I mentioned in the press release as well. Uh, adjusting travel policies, for example, uh, by sort of asking, not forcing, but asking companies to take into account um, more sustainable ways of traveling when they need to. Uh, rail versus air travel, for example. Uh, and of course, all of these, these companies need electricity. So why not switch to green providers? So um, I'm pretty sure not a single investor is going to force any of their portfolio companies to do that. Uh, what they can do is ask uh, future companies, companies that they haven't yet invested in, um, to sort of include that in, in, their, in their pitch and in their due diligence process. And then they can... They can't enforce it, but they can be a little bit more strict in which companies they, they actually keep talking to for investment. Now, I'm cynical enough to know that an investor, uh, I mean, a venture capitalist is not going to deny uh, the, the sexiest startup they've ever seen walk through the door an investment just because they, they travel by plane more than by, by, by train. Um, but I mean, it is sending a signal. It's the same thing that happened with BlackRock uh, earlier this month, which is one of the biggest investment firms in the world, made a very clear commitment to um, force the companies that they invest in um, to think sustainable, sustainability, to, to make more of an effort on renewable energy. Uh, and I think this is the way sort of it needs to work. Um, when you're a venture capitalist, you sort of have, from the top, you have your LPs. Uh, you have your own investors. Uh, and these are also becoming more climate and sustainability conscious. Um, we hear this all the time when we talk to you know, pension funds, private equity firms. Um, they have this very high on their agenda, whether it's for PR reasons or not. It doesn't really matter because what happens is it trickles down to the VCs that they invest in. And from the other side, you also have from, from the bottom down, you have these, these younger generation of entrepreneurs are also more climate conscious. They, they grew up sort of, um, True. with this climate crisis already a part of their lives, right? So, so they're, they're automatically almost more conscious about these things than, than older, uh, quote unquote, uh, entrepreneurs. Um, so VCs have to feel that pressure both from the top and the bottom. So this is sort of what it, what it results in, I think. Yeah, now I think you're doing a pretty good job at selling me the, the whole idea. So I guess I'm a bit less skeptical right now than I was when we started this conversation. Wow, and I'm not even being paid for this. Damn it. <laughs> um, if I could say one thing critical, like, you know, you get this press release from, from a VC. I'm not going to name them because it's not their fault. But you get this press release and they, they use all the right words and it's a very nice initiative. And then they quote one of their portfolio companies, which is Bitwala. And the quote starts with like, by providing the first bank account where cryptocurrencies can be held and traded, uh, blah, blah, blah. So that I think was, it was such a missed opportunity for this company to highlight what they were doing in terms of sustainability. And all they do is like to start off with a, with a promotion, essentially an ad. So that's a bit of a missed opportunity. Um, I think if these VC firms sort of force their companies to not only be more sustainable and to think more sustainably, but also communicate about what they're already doing and the plans that they have, like if they're doing something that is unsustainable today, at least communicate to the outside world, what are you doing to make it better in the future? You know, this is what Microsoft just announced, like they want to be carbon negative, not even carbon uh, neutral, but carbon negative by 2050, if I'm not mistaken. Right. Yeah. Um, so that's a big commitment. That's communicating. We're not doing everything right, but we, you know, at the very least, we commit to um, doing this over the, the, the next uh, 30 years. And then you can hold them accountable. 
right? So now we also have a way for this sustainability clause to sort of bite the VC firms and the startups that they invest uh, in back in the ass because now we can say, well, what about this sustainability clause that you signed, you know, a number of years ago or a number of months ago? Um, so at the very least, they sort of stick their neck out to be more accountable. So that's good for us as journalists. Uh, and it's also good for the industry as a whole. True. So do you think we're going to see more of this uh, coming up across Europe? I can certainly hope so. Um, what I would not like to see is to see different kinds of sustainability clauses uh, end up oh, in, yeah. in term sheets in the UK than in Germany. I would rather to have all of them sort of back the same uh, initiative or the same organization that's dealing with this, um, because I'm guessing it's a nonprofit anyway. Um, so I hope we don't see the same kind of fragmentation that we've seen in, for example, you know, template term sheets or or other other documentation that that relates to startup investments. So hopefully everything will just align on one one project and one initiative. For sure. Let's just have at least one thing that is the same uh, across the across the whole Europe. Unlike uh, power plugs uh, and uh, light bulb uh, mechanisms and all that. Exactly. And let's hope startups, not even <laughs> not even when they raise funding from these firms, but also everyone else just thinks about these things from the beginning. Because when you're a startup, you're only like a co-founder or two co-founders. It doesn't really matter. But if you want to scale a company, you need to think of this in advance. Like if we have offices and we're going to you know, consume more electricity and people are going to travel more often, like if, if you sort of in, in, ingrain this in your culture from day one, I think everybody wins wins right so awareness is a big key of that yeah for sure okay robin thanks a lot for this conversation it's always a great pleasure as i said to have you on the show and i do hope that uh, i'm going to be able to lure you uh, around a bit more often now well i was just gonna say i hope i'm welcome back very soon because i really enjoy this thanks a million thank you bye have a good one now, the second topic I wanted to delve in a little bit in this episode is shared micromobility. That's e-scooters, bikes, e-bikes, and everything around that. And if you have been listening to this podcast for a while, you know that I like this topic, but I'm certainly not an expert. Fortunately, though, I have recently met someone who is. So meet Alexander Gokelan, the author of the Shared Micromobility blog. Alex is a bicycle nerd who lives in Paris, which has become a major e-scooter battlefield over the past year. So we started the conversation with a look at the year 2019 and the most important things that happened in the industry. So first I would talk about the hardware development. Uh, so that's kind of a race towards better unit economics. Uh, there was strong improvements on the hardware. Uh, first on safety with the vehicle. Well, if we talk a bit more about e-scooters, uh, there has been a focus on the development of uh, safety features uh, with larger wheels, uh, better management of speed limits, uh, better stabi stability and suspensions and so on. So there has been a huge development uh, on safety and talking about unit economics as well. So now we have, the operators are not anymore picking scooters from the shelf. Uh, they are building uh, vehicles dedicated for shared use. So all the parts are swappable in order to improve the, the economics. Uh, there's also hidden parts uh, to lower uh, the probability of vandalism. And the use of swappable batteries is becoming more common as well to, to improve the operational costs. The second point I would develop is that 
we didn't see a good operational model uh, that came as a as an evidence. Uh, so talking, uh, we are so it's uh, more a matter of discussing the free floating uh, solution uh, either for bikes or scooters. Uh, so this is uh, an introduction to the forecast for 2020, but. Uh, I really think that will be that there will be a, a real change to uh, around the use of stations, for example, either for vehicles or just for batteries. Uh, and I really wonder if the free floating, as we know it, is uh, is really viable. And I, I also think that uh, twenty nineteen uh, just raises big challenges for operators. Uh, first, because uh, because. In any countries, I think in any country around the world, uh, we saw stricter local regulation uh, with, for example, fit caps on uh, parking, parking requirements, for example. Uh, so operators will have to find solutions around that. And uh, as we already talked about, they will have to become more profitable or more profitable to, to be sustainable. Uh, so we talked about hardware development. And, uh, we can also talk about software development. Uh, maybe I, I'm pretty sure there's a lot of solutions that will be implemented, such as gamification or incentives for the user to help the operation uh, with balancing and, uh, and prune and hardware problem declarations and so on. So with that in mind, and having read Alex's recent post on his blog, I couldn't resist asking about his take on the situation in Paris. The city has in many ways become the capital of shared micromobility, and at some point in 2019 it had more than 20,000 e-scooters on the streets operated by 12 different companies. So nobody was too surprised when the city authorities unveiled the plan to cap the number of e-scooter operators at just three companies, with up to 5,000 vehicles for each. In late December, Paris finally published a request for proposals, aka the RFP, outlining what it wants to see from the candidates. According to the RFP, there are three main criteria the city is looking at. The first one is user safety, which will account for 30% of the final assessment. The second one, also at 30%, is operations. That includes management, maintenance, and charging, but also equitable geographic distribution of vehicles, for example. And then the last criterion at 40% is environmental responsibility. That includes the emissions of maintenance vehicles, durability of the e-scooters, recycling plans, and so on and so forth. The companies willing to get one of the three available licenses have to apply before mid-March, while the results are expected to be published in the summer, probably somewhere in June. So Alex has his own bet as to who will be successful in this contest. So his choice is Dot, Voy, and Lime. And here is why. Uh, my first choice was that uh, partially because they are French, as I said, and politically and economically, it's quite impossible to see no French operator in the big. Uh, in addition, all their communication is around, is around social re- responsibility, environmental responsibility. So they have a very good image and they are very clever in the way they operate and they communicate around their operation. So I think I may, I don't make, uh, I don't, I'm not taking this big risk, uh, betting on that. Uh, 
then I think uh, I would pick uh, one American operator as well, but doesn't have a good image in France. Maybe I have launched without licenses or agreements from the city at the beginning. Uh, they extended to La Défense, for example, the business district, which is just close by. With, uh, without agreement as well. So I would pick Lime because uh, also uh, picking a good big one is uh, is safe for the city. You don't take uh, economical risk. Uh, so I picked one French, one American, and uh, I would also pick one big European player. I'm really hesitating between Voy and Tier, but of course I'm I based my bets mostly on the news and uh, on the on the discussion the discussions I have with people. Uh, so, from um, image point of view, I, w- I would pick Void because they are working a bit uh, a bit better. To uh, so, for example, they are using uh, only electric vehicles to balance or pick their vehicles um, and they are using uh, 100% renewable energy so they are communicating a lot of uh, this kind of services so I think they are are one step forward in front of Tia. The license contest in Paris will probably be one of the main developments in the share of micromobility space in Europe in 2020 but certainly not the only one. So I asked Alex what his predictions are for the year that has just started. So as I said I think the the regulations from the cities are getting more and more strict. Uh, so I think it's it basically sounds the end of uh, the free floating system as we know it. Uh, so now in most of the of the big cities, uh, we see the implementation of uh, parking zones, preferred parking zones, or even charging stations. Uh, so I think we will move from a full free floating solution to a, a hybrid, I would say, between stations and free floating, where we you'll have these parking zones which are dotless, but which are uh, which will be painted on the floor, basically. And in addition to that, I think we might see the emergence of uh, charging stations, uh, maybe not for vehicles itself, but uh, kind of uh, of stations for battery charging, but only for batteries. Uh, some operators are already working on such solutions, such as Jump. Um, so users might get uh, credits uh, for putting a battery in charge at the end of their trips. So the second point I see for 2020 is the, the arrival of uh, new form factors. Uh, so I talked in one article about the arrival of cargo bikes, shared cargo bikes, because in most uh, big cities, people are really getting rid of their cars, but they still need to to deal with the cargo, with cargo to pick up their kids, for example. So there's still there's a need for for new use cases where where you need where for which you need more cargo space. And then I think we might see more, for example, three or four wheel uh, scooters avoid uh, uh, unveiled such a, such a model uh, in. I think it was in May last year. 
uh, we might see in the see it in the streets very soon. And uh, when real game real when real game changer I see uh, might be the two seaters e bikes. Just because people just love to ride together. If you see, uh, I think it's the same in every main cities. All the tourists are happy to ride uh, to on a scooter or to on a bike. Uh, so let's make it safer by providing uh, the appropriate vehicles. I think it it really has a good. Uh, it has a real future. On the business side of things, Alex is certain that we won't see any new major operators coming into the e-scooter scene in Europe. The market is getting mature now and the investors are much more cautious and less likely to pour tens of millions of euros in new players. Also, we have just heard that Bird uh, from the US is allegedly in talks to buy Cirque, so we may actually see some consolidation on the market before the year ends. So for me, I think the market will be divided into the big operators will remain in big cities because it will implies more investment uh, because uh, the operations are more difficult. Uh, you have to provide a sufficient fleet size and you have to be able to adapt to the ever-evolving regulation that we were talking about earlier. Uh, while maybe some small local operators which know the, the local area and uh, who build local, local relationships will be able to answer smaller uh, smaller markets in smaller cities uh, where it won't be profitable for for bigger operators. So yeah, I think there's a, a possibility to develop smaller programs in uh, in European countries and in smaller cities because. To be profitable, such programs uh, need uh, local knowledge, local relationships, uh, to understand where you have to, to drop your scooters. So we are used uh, maybe to build stations because it makes more sense when, when you have uh, less usage. So yeah, you really, it, it is possible with, uh, with a good local knowledge. And it also looks like the small and local shared micromobility providers will become the only ones allowed to operate in the Netherlands, the country where I live. The country has been for a long time one of the strongholds that wouldn't let e-scooters on the streets together with Ireland and the UK as well. Uh, so recently I asked a spokesperson of the municipality of Amsterdam about its plans and got the following response. The quote begins, A possibility that remains is if the kick e-scooters are part of a small-scale neighborhood initiative where the municipality has granted an exemption for that specific experiment. The kick e-scooters have to be designated by the minister as special mopeds and meet the requirements for being allowed on public roads. The latter also applies to private individuals with kick e-scooters. They can only take them on the public road if they have been approved by the Minister of Infrastructure and Water Management. The quote ends. The requirements mentioned in this answer are actually very tough. They include air tires, uh, they include double braking systems, and so on and so forth. And I don't think there are currently any e-scooters on the market that would... Uh, comply with these requirements. There are now, however, some rumors uh, that the authorities in the Netherlands are working on special regulation for e-scooters, and something will be published after March. So let's keep watching this space for now.
And if you follow our news coverage closely, you could have also noticed a big screw-up that I had with this story. It actually makes for a good cautionary tale, I guess, so I will just share it real quick. So, the whole story started with a column of uh, Frederick Helm, the CEO of Voy, who said that Amsterdam was planning tenders for e-scooter companies. I was really surprised to hear about it, and uh, I asked the city whether it's true at all, and the spokesperson confirmed that the tender is indeed already there, it's underway, so I thought I had a great exclusive story on my hands, which I quickly wrote up and published. So later that night, however, I got a tip-off from the CEO of another e-scooter company who suggested that something wasn't right about that news piece. To cut the long story short here, after some back and forth over email, I realized that what the city of Amsterdam calls e-scooters and what I call e-scooters are different things. While I was talking about kick scooters, that is something like uh, what Lime, Dot, or Voy have, they were talking about e-mopeds like Coop or Felix. So I had to update my story ASAP, which is always frustrating, but I guess it's a lesson learned here. Uh, it's always better to double-check these kind of things, and if someone can misunderstand you, they most probably will. That's just how it works. Anyway, let's go back to our micromobility forecasts and uh, back to the strongholds of uh, the UK and Ireland. And looking at those, there are actually good chances that both countries will adjust their regulation this year to allow e-scooters on the streets, but it's really hard to say for sure how it's going to look in practice. In Dublin, for example, there is already a pilot going on by Blue Duck Scooters, and you can check our episode number 151 from two weeks ago and listen to an interview with uh, its VP Operations about the company's plans. Another good point Alex made in that conversation with me is that the big micromobility operators are actually about to start paying much more attention to the question of profitability. It's one of the big challenges uh, that will, that is arriving for operators just to become profitable uh, through hardware development, software development, and also better operations. So I think the key will be around battery charging. Uh, I don't know, I'm not sure what the good answer will be, but uh, we'll see a lot of, uh, of the development tests around that. So, to sum it up, we can expect new hardware, no big new players, maybe some consolidation, the end of free floating, cities coming to a much better structured approach to this topic, profitability from at least some players, and that's about it. Do you think we have missed something here? If you think so, let me know by email at podcast at techeu or on Twitter at adegular. I would love to hear from you. For now, that's it for today's episode of the podcast. I do hope you enjoyed it. If you did, tell a friend or colleague about the show and follow our updates on Twitter at tech underscore eu. Audio engineering for this podcast is done by SoundPulse. That is sound-pulse.com. Thank you so much for listening. Enjoy the rest of the week. And I'm going to talk to you next Monday. Bye-bye. Oh,